scripture this morning comes from the epistle to the Ephesians, verses 15 through 23. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these thankful hearts of ours. Amen. I spent the day Friday driving from Cleveland to Alexandria, leaving about 6.30 a.m. so as to get back here to see a couple of people in the hospital and to replace the Comcast modem that had rendered Wi-Fi virtually inoperable at home shortly before we made the drive to Cleveland on Wednesday. We had journeyed there to visit my wife's family, as we often do on holidays, and as some of her children were not able to arrive until yesterday, she stayed back and is flying home today, hence my drive home was a drive alone. The six-hour drive gave me time to think and to catch up with some of what goes on at Westminster. I listened to all three podcasts of Bruce Douglas's lectures in adult education on the history of the Reformation, the fourth of which was this morning. I listened to recent sermons by Whitney and Patrick, and for a dose of humility to one of my own sermons as well, something I will only do in the absolute privacy of the car. (laughs) And I listened to to a recent adult ed presentation of our now 17 years ministry in taking the lead with other churches in creating and supporting the United Orphanage and Academy in Moise Bridge, Kenya. Part of my thoughts on this drive were geared to what I would say today on Christ the King, the Reign of Christ Sunday. It is a day, as Casey said, which marks the end of one liturgical year, and it distinguishes the nature of Christ's rule on earth from that of political rule under which we all live. Whether we live in a republic as we do in this country or under a reign of tyranny, apparently ending after 37 years in Zimbabwe. 
The Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says that this festival of Christ the King ends our marking of ordinary time and it moves us to the threshold of Advent, the season of hope for Christ's coming at the end of time. The day centers on the crucified and risen Christ whom God exalted to rule over the whole universe. Christ reigns supreme. Christ, truth, judges falsehood. As the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Christ is the center of the universe, the ruler of all history, the judge of all people. In Christ all things begin, and in Christ all things will be fulfilled. In the end, Christ's will triumphs over evil. Driving back from a peaceful Thanksgiving in which, surprisingly, national political divisions didn't make much of an appearance at the table this year, I was nonetheless aware of efforts that various people have been making to bring a measure of civility, if not peace, to our national discussion. On Tuesday, two organizations with which I'm familiar collaborated collaborated to release a series of videos in which 17 members of Congress expressed their views on what holds us together as a nation. One said we can debate and we can feel strongly about our differences, but what we have in common is so much stronger, so much broader, and we need to keep remembering that. Another Representative Steve Scalise, who was shot on the ball field in Alexandria, added, I personally have a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. But all of us do. This appeal to our common heritage is one way of recovering a sense of national civility. Another voice urging a deeper unity than our current headlines comes from a figure to who I have found myself returning to listen in the divisiveness of recent years. In Monday's post, Garrison Keillor wrote, It's a great country. Take a train sometime and see for yourself. We're not at war, at least within our own shores. The economy is worrisome, but it's always been. Longevity is getting longer. People read books more than ever. They still know the words to the battle hymn of the Republic. It helps to get old, he says, so you can gain some perspective on life. I was lucky to come along when open heart surgery was available, and there were blood thinners to reduce the risk of strokes. If I'd been born in 1880, I'd be dead by now. I did my best to die young, he says, but then common sense kicked in. Praise the Lord. I burned the smokes and poured the whiskey in the sink. I married well, Keeler says. It took several times, but I made it. She is sharp and on top of things. She is lively and witty. And she's in love with me. 
and has forgiven my excesses. It is the perspective of age and history about himself and about our nation that leaves Keeler thankful this holiday. While I, for one, do not think our nation is as divided as we were during the Civil War, nor as divided as we were during the spring and summer of 1968, we have in recent years come to experience one of the more divided times in our history. Unlike in prior times, our divisions today rear their voice and face every minute we are in the presence of screens posted in workplaces, in department stores, in gyms where we work out, and on devices we carry in our pockets and purses. Thus, while our divisions may not be as yet far-reaching as prior ones, they are more omnipresent to us. And they take a psychic toll on all of us, peaceful thanksgiving or not. As I listened to my own sermon driving home, I realized that in the past couple of years, in the midst of our national divisiveness, I've been trying to emphasize two things that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. The teaching that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore is a child of God. And the teaching that the steadfast love of the Lord is given to every human being. The essayist Marilyn Robinson recently quoted a 17th century Puritan preacher on the first point. The soul of the poorest child is of equal dignity with the soul of Adam. It is a most astonishing mystery, this preacher continued, to see heaven and earth married together in one person, the dust of the ground and an immortal spirit clasping each other with such dear embraces and tender love. How little affinity And yet what deep affection is found between these two? It is difficult to cast our fellow human beings aside or even to denigrate them if we see the dear affection found between body and soul that constitute who they are, that constitute who we are, that constitute who every human being is. The soul of the poorest child is equal in dignity with the soul of Adam. Likewise, in a sermon I preached two weeks ago, I ended, this is the one I listened to, with the final line of Psalm 107. Let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord the sacredness of each human being, of each human soul, the steadfast love of the Lord. These are two traditional Christian teachings that serve as a positive counterforce 
to the divisiveness of our day. But our text for this reign of Christ Sunday exceeds in emphasis even these two hallmarks of Christian teaching. In emphasizing human unity, today's text points to something else. It points to God's ultimate power which stands above us all. Written by either Paul as a mature statement of his theology near the end of his life or by a disciple of Paul who wrote Ephesians in his honor or memory and to represent his best thought. This passage affirms the ultimate triumph of the power of God at the end of time and the reality of that power in the present. It speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us who believe according to the workings of His great power. God put this power to work in Christ, the letter says, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. This passage's focus is less on the love of God or the value of each human soul as it focuses on the power of God made known in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. It speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the working of God's great power, God's putting His power to work in Christ in the resurrection and the ascension. And the writer then makes the bold claim that Christ's divine power is far above. Note the word far far above all rule and authority and power and dominion that we know on earth. For some reason, I remember when Robert Mugabe came to power in Zimbabwe in 1980. I was a student at Union Seminary in New York, and I have a vague memory that a fellow student was the brother of a Methodist bishop who briefly and unsuccessfully preceded Mugabe in the presidency. Since then, I've always known the name and been vaguely aware of the cruelty of his regime. Yet despite that cruelty and the cruelty of others like him in history, I still believe that God's power is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion that we know on earth. As the book of worship says, in the end, Christ will triumph over these forces of evil. The passage then adds an additional key phrase describing Christ's power. Above every name that is named. In raising Christ from the dead, the resurrection, in seating Christ at the right hand of God, the ascension, God has lifted God's very self, Father, Son, and Spirit above every name that is named. Above the name of our most despicable earthly rulers. Above the name of our most venerated earthly leaders.
above the name of those who abuse their power and their office and violate people who work for or near them, above the name of those who muster the courage to come forward and name those who have abused. Christ's name is above the name of our political party or the political party of that person seated across the table from us at Thanksgiving. Christ's name is above the name of our most fervent understanding of what our nation should stand for, should be, and do. And above the name of our most fervent understanding of what our nation should not stand for, not be, and not do. And finally, the writer adds, not only in this age, but in the age to come. If we stop and think about this word order, it's a bit odd. Most of us have a general trust that God will make things right in the age to come. But we live with doubts about this age. But the writer is reversing this. The writer has so much confidence about God's power in this age that he states it in this odd word order and says Christ's power is not only in this age, but in the age to come. Unlike him, we need to be reminded that God's power prevails not only in the age to come, but in this age of flesh and blood in which we live. The reason we go to Cleveland at holidays is that my wife's mother moved there 11 years ago when we got married to live with her son and his family. Her mother is 97 years old. Her mind is sharp, but she now needs help getting up out of the chair. Her son, who is in his late 60s and retired, sleeps in her room at night when she has trouble breathing and often sits on her bed holding her hand to try to alleviate the panic attacks that come. When it came time for me to tell her goodbye on Thanksgiving night, though she was standing at her walker, the events of the day had taken their toll and she just simply couldn't raise her head to look at me. So I squatted down so we could say goodbye face to face because the unspoken reality is that every goodbye following a visit may turn out to be the last goodbye. Now this family has never shied away from talking about or arguing about politics They are a large family. They cover several generations. They have branches on the West Coast and in the East Coast and in the Midwest. They include several members of mixed racial heritage, and they represent people who live at all economic sectors of our society. 
Thus they reflect the deepest divisions in our country today. Now last Thanksgiving, immediately after the election, the discussions around the table were quite heated. At one point, I thought I noticed the turkey trying to slink away and leave. (laughs) But when politics came up this Thanksgiving, the heat was considerably less, though new protagonists and reinforcements were on their way on Saturday. So I don't know what happened since I left. Perhaps the mood was more civil out of respect for the age and the condition of the matriarch who sat at the head of the table. Or perhaps the civility grew out of the heritage of this family in which several generations have served as Presbyterian missionaries and ministers. Perhaps they have bequeathed to each new generation some subtle awareness that in this world in which we live, the power of God is in fact greater than all human powers. Amen.